0: Hello and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. We like to cover the spectrum of sports and stats here on the show. That means we get more technical with some guests, like our last couple, and Corey Jez and Tegan Ashby we talked about building data platforms and developing software for MLB and NBA teams. And we also talk about using stats more broadly for game prep for teams or in the media. And we're at the latter end of the spectrum with this show. It's episode 62, and as as much as the Dolphins fan in me wants to call it the Jim Langer episode for the Hall of Fame Center, this is the Arnold Palmer episode. And if you want to know why Arnold Palmer, well, you'll have to read the new book co-written by today's guest, who, according to his bio in the book, is recognized as one of the premier researchers in the industry. His name is Paul Himbikitis, known simply as Himbo, and he is a producer and a researcher at ESPN. He's co-written the New York Times best-selling book, Got Your Number in which he and ESPN's Mike Greenberg write about, as the cover says, the greatest sports legends and the numbers they own. Kembo and Greeny go from 1 to 100. They write a few pages on which athlete or team owns that number. Uh, you can guess a lot of them. Spoiler alert, Gretzky is 99, Jordan is 23. But they're not all jersey numbers. There's records, there's years, medals, a whole lot more. Uh, And what's universal about the book and Himbo's work is that he's very good at taking complex information, countless numbers, and making them digestible for readers, for TV viewers. So he, in a lot of ways, does the same thing that just about anyone who works in data does. Now, full disclosure, I helped Himbo with a few chapters of this book. I'm a little bit biased, but I do highly recommend the book as it's just a way to learn more about great athletes, coaches, uh, their amazing athletic accomplishments. And, you know, it's fun to read about the all-time greats, what they did in their careers. So today we're going to talk with Himbo about the origins, the process of researching and writing the book, about different decisions that had to be made and assigning numbers to athletes, balancing stats and words when writing about data, his academic and career path to ESPN, what a researcher does there, what he currently does as a producer on Get Up, ESPN's morning show, the challenges of finding the best stat for certain situations, communicating advanced stats to people who are less familiar with them, advice for anyone who wants to get into sports research, and most importantly, his favorite movie musical. Now Himbo and I have known each other for almost nine years. We worked together in ESPN's research department for three and a half or so. We'll get some ESPN stories, a little taste of what the research room was like back in the day. So, without further ado, here is the expected value conversation with the co-author of Got Your Number, ESPN's Paul Himbekinis. <laughs> We're joined now by ESPN content producer Paul Hempikidis, whom I probably have not called by his full name since we first met almost what, nine years ago. Hembo, welcome to the show. How does it feel to be a New York Times best-selling author?
1: It is kind of surreal, to be honest with you. Uh, I, never, I had never written anything longer than a 10,000 word term paper in my life. And so the idea that this is a thing that became uh, what it has is pretty wild. Um, I wasn't terribly surprised that we hit the bestseller list at the beginning just because it includes all of your pre-orders. And like, we obviously do a two hour radio show every day that effectively serves as as an infomercial for the thing. And we were able to use a lot of the content from the book to fill airtime. And so that was not that much of a surprise. Um, We also did a pretty big media blitz tour and all those things counted towards week one. But to have been on the bestseller list for week two and week three was a big surprise. So, like, I guess what people say is, if you if you hit the bestseller list in week one, it means you had a good PR, marketing, advertising campaign. If you hit the, the best-selling uh, bestseller list beyond that, it means you might have written a good book. So, who knows? Maybe we've written a good book.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe. So, uh, what's the origin story? I know. I've heard you mentioned this in a few different places, but what was the origin story on the book for you and Greeny?
1: The origin story is beyond basic and beyond organic. So uh, we're talking about like uh, April or May of 2020. And we, I live in the Northeast, as does he. And so like we're like in the thick of COVID, like the like the two weeks to slow the spread turning into two months to slow the spread turning into like maybe the hot weather will just like make this thing go away. Right. Um, so that's like where we were in the world. And so Greeny was, like, doing uh, get-ups up in Bristol, actually, um, because our New York office is shut down. That was kind of, like, the, you know, ground zero of the thing. And, like, literally one day at random, he called me in the early afternoon with this idea. He wanted to write a book that had 100 chapters, 1 through 100, and he wanted to assign uh, a number to an athlete that owns that number. Like, that was his idea from the beginning. The origin is, like, um, Pete McConville, who's the CP of our show – Asked, like, you know, all these all these uh, quarterbacks, legendary quarterbacks, more than number 12. Who actually owns the number 12, right? That was kind of the impetus. Obviously, Tom Brady owns the number 12. Spoiler alert if you've not written the book. But at that point, kind of a light bulb went out, uh, off in Greeny's head. I think he was just exceedingly bored. His kids are going to college, and he wanted something to do. He called me and asked if I do the research for this book that he would write. And then three years later, we wound up on the bestseller list and on Good Morning America. So um, there was no like, there was no like really like real negotiating in terms of like what the idea might look like. There was no like tug of war as far as like trying to like, pin down the conception. It was literally just like that light bulb went off in his head. It's super easy to explain and digest. And I think that's a big reason why the book has been so successful.
0: Let's talk process because this is, you know, everyone has to deal with process of basically making stats and information interesting, legible. Etc., and you're just doing a kind of a different form than most. So, what was the process from the beginning? Some numbers pick themselves. You know who 99 is going to be, you know, 61 probably, stuff like that. Uh, some are less familiar. What was the whole process of kind of that initial stage of picking athletes, picking their numbers?
1: Yeah. So, this it's kind of went in two phases. So, the first was uh, the, con- the creation of just an enormously long Google Doc in which I created you know, hundred different subsections who could possibly fill each of these numbers, right? And so I start in the obvious places. Like I go to the four major sports and I backfill any person that might be worth writing about that wore numbers one through 99, right? So that's that's first where you start. What if you've read the book and you've, and you've read the book and, and and others who are reading it now have commented, like, it's not just jersey numbers, though, because if you wind up doing just jersey numbers – you wind up writing thirty or forty really uninteresting chapters, mostly about linemen, right?
0: Because <laughs> sorry guys.
1: You know, because once you get into the once you get out of the fifties, it's it's kind of Siberia in terms of jersey numbers because like most of the legendary athletes across the four major sports didn't wear super high jersey numbers. Um And so we learned over the course of time that we were going to need to kind of modify the idea a little bit to include records, uh, to include years, to include milestones, to include distances, right? Got to get
0: all those sports who, you know, tennis and golf and swimming who don't even have jerseys.
1: Correct. And and we have, and I actually have a breakdown here of of the various sports that we have. And there are at least a dozen. I mean, like if you, so between football, baseball, basketball, and hockey, we only comprise something like 60% of the book. You know, so we're talking about like there's coaches in the book, there's a horse in the book, there are commentators in the book, like there's a number of other things, other people, other, there's plenty of teams in the book, right? And so that's what I think really we something we really pride ourselves on is first let's let's constant let's put together like a list like a sort of a definitive list of who could go where, and then we sort of painstakingly go through one through a hundred and kind of finesse it to make sure that we have the right people in the right spot, which is both easier and more challenging that you than you would expect in certain ways. And then once we make those decisions, that's where like, I really take pride in this stuff. And like I, I, went back and forth with you a little bit on some of these uh, on some of the Olympic sports throughout my process because that's an area of expertise for which I just don't have that you do. Um, but that's really where I think like the muscle really really shows up here because like this is actually I view this as a as a sports history book and as someone who just knows and loves sports history I guess as much as anyone at least my age right to be able to like find the stats the information the the the, the narrative the stories like the anecdotes that really make this thing, make this thing sing I guess is probably what I take more pride in than anything else like the constitution of the list and who we chose for for what is I would say more his thing. And in terms of like how we sort of proved or evidenced greatness is more mine. So that's how I would probably best describe our process.
0: So then from a research standpoint, and we'll get into more kind of what a researcher does kind of in a a day job sort of things, but just to start focus on the book, how do you, how do you go about, what do you do? How do you research stats, facts? You know, some are probably easier than others. how do you kind of start that each guy for, woman from a research standpoint
1: sure um it totally depends on the sport and the availability of information and so like for someone like babe ruth who's chapter three like finding babe ruth stats is incredibly easy i mean like his wikipedia page is like twenty thousand words long and like there are a number of great stats in there but obviously we went far and beyond that for the four major sports like you're using kind of like the traditional back of the back of the sports card type ideas and trying to do the best you can to amplify their best seasons what what demonstrates uh, the greatness of their career in the best possible way. You know, just like the kind of sports fodder that you might, you know, expect to demonstrate like how incredible the 56-game hit streak that Joe DiMaggio had was or to, to demonstrate just how much greater Wayne Gretzky was than any other hockey player of his time or any time or just how unbelievable 100 points in an NBA game is uh, in relation to any other game anyone has literally ever had. For, for a lot of the others, it took a lot more creativity, right? It took a lot more... It took a lot more finesse in terms of like trying to demonstrate like sixty six years of Vince Scully, who's chapter sixty six in our book, like how to how can I best amplify what he did in a way that you know this is not he doesn't have stats right so what's the best way to show like the length of his career what's the best way to demonstrate like how what baseball looked like when he started and what baseball looked like when it ended for Pat Summit Pat Summit who's chapter thirty eight in our book uh, from her time at the University of Tennessee like how how can you best uh, illustrate what makes her so incredibly important and so great at her job, right? And so, like, honestly, for each of these people, the best way that I can describe how I started this process was what do I want to know about them? Because for as much as I know about sports history, Paul, as you well know, and and, and, you majored in this stuff too for years – we don't know everything. And so it was like sort of my natural curiosity, the kind of reason why we were good researchers is kind of why this book is kind of good. Just because like, I, I want to know something. And if you have this sort of insatiable, like this unquenchable thirst for knowledge and research, you for the, like, the search of the almighty note, right? Like what's the best way to show how great John Havlicek was? You sort of get yourself in that rabbit hole and that process in your brain from years and years of research just kind of starts to populate and sort of regenerate, right? So that's such a nebulous answer. But from having done this for as long as 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 you've done this, I think you kind of understand where I'm coming from. Like it was much more of an art than science. Uh, And I didn't expect that to be the case, but in the end, I think we reached a place where all 100 of these chapters sort of serve the purpose that they were supposed to. And I think in each case, the numbers do tell a pretty sizable story.
0: One of the eternal challenges that we face as researchers, whether it's for TV, whether it's for a book, whatever, is making stats like legible. And I don't mean like literally being able to read them, but just not, you know, you don't want the book to be a whole bunch of bullet points of numbers, that's it. How do you balance that out? The stats, the words, making the information interesting for someone who is reading it here.
1: So once you come across a piece of information that you find interesting or compelling, you have to ask yourself for each, what does it mean? And if the answer is nothing, you don't include it. If the answer is something in some form or fashion, then you use it because like the best way that I have, have described this process that we have you know, gone through here is they're his words and they're my numbers, right? And what I want to ensure is that my numbers can be used to tell a story. If they can tell a story, and this is one of the things you learn like in your, in your onboarding as a researcher at ESPN, then the number has power. Then the number has meaning. Like coming up with a stat is perf- a perfectly fine thing to do, but any number of people can do it. It's what comes in the parentheses after the statistic that makes it good or not good. And in my case, what I attempted to do in every single case is not just demonstrate that John Elway started five Super Bowls. He happens to be number seven over Mickey Mantle, uh, which we can talk about another day. That'll be for the for the you know, for the second for the for the second podcast. But how like how how can we contextualize the fact that he drugged so many teams to the Super Bowl? Because the first three that he drugged to the Super Bowl candidly weren't all that good. And so, like that's that's the key, right? To be able to not just say what happened what does it mean? And what story can it tell? And I think the combination of gr- the way that Greeny can sort of weave narrative with the numbers that I did provide him sort of provides the, the book. Like a, it's really, it's like this kind of density in terms of information and numbers that I think no matter how fluent you are in numbers as a sports fan, I think you can really enjoy and appreciate.
0: So I'm going to jump on that Elway thing just because this, this question is coming from my dad, who's a longtime Mike and Mike listener and viewer. So he knows Greeny's history with the Yankees. He knows Greeny left Seinfeld, whatever. His biggest surprise was that Mickey Mantle was not number seven. Uh, I, how did that decision come about? I know this is a nice, we question, but how did the decision come oh, about?
1: This is one of the most common questions that we have fielded. So here, here's here's where we landed, and the best way to sort of describe why Mantle is not 7, why John, John l a is. Um, I think one challenge that we had was that there are so many great Yankees that wore numbers 2 through 8 right, or not. Right, the single like that's, It's an obvious challenge. And so what you don't want, is a never ending run of Yankees to sort a book. Now, obviously, like for a, you know, a lot of people in the Northeast are gonna buy this book and be upset that Mickey Mantle is, is not seven. But I've heard from just as many people that live in Denver or that were like, that were like so happy that the whole book was, the whole beginning of the book was not just a never ending run of Yankees. But that's not necessarily a good enough explanation if Mickey Mantle deserves it. The John Elway research is actually pretty astonishing. Like Mickey Mantle might not be on the Yankees Mount Rushmore. Whereas John Elway's on the Denver sports Mount Rushmore, if there was a landslide that washed away the other three heads on Mount Rushmore. And if you consider what he put together in, during his time as a, as a Denver Bronco, they literally owned the worst record in pro football from the day, from the inception of the franchise until the day that they drafted him. He took them to five championships. He retired with the third most yards and the third most touchdowns in the history of the NFL for a quarterback, much like Mickey Mantle retired third all-time in the all-time home run list. When you actually do the data dig, like you come across it in a place in which you're fairly surprised by it. So what it comes down to for us is like the legend of Mickey Mantle is largely enhanced by the fact that he played for the Yankees, which is definitely part of the calculus here. But had John Elway did what he did for the Giants, there's no question that he's number seven in the book. And so I think you have to kind of balance out all the things. Does Mickey Mantle deserve a spot in the book? Absolutely. Should we have considered putting Joe DiMaggio at 56 and not five and putting Lauren, Thater, Lauren Taylor 86 instead of 56? Absolutely. But these are the things that you have to reconcile when you're doing a book like this, like You can't put two number sevens, right? You can't give Lawrence Taylor number 22 and a half for the number of sacks he had that year, right? You have to find, you have to, there's some tough choices you have to make. There's a lot of great athletes that we excluded. And so ultimately that's where we landed on number seven. It's not really a satisfactory answer, but it's the best one that I can provide.
0: I was disappointed it wasn't Bobby Witt Jr. But (laughs) honestly, 2.0. Yeah. Uh, Also, when I was in college. I wrote a Dan Marino is better than John Elway paper. So I should have said that. I was going to be very upset, but you know, Marino shows up later. So yes, he's uh, okay 13. any boy, other boy. big, uh, I don't know, surprises someone. Oh, I didn't expect this person to make it or something like that as you went along the way.
1: Yes. We I'll, I'll rifle through some objections. And I want you to tell me which one sort of most stand out to you. Okay. So we have Tim Tebow at 15. We have Tim Tebow at 15 over Bart Starr and over Patrick Mahomes, which right now through the prism of the present seems indefensible. Um, Bart Starr probably is the person that belongs there based upon his five championships with the Packers. Um, And Patrick Mahomes is an inner circle Hall of Famer already. Probably will be. Yeah. Right. And had we written the book a year later, he probably would have been 15. But we posit that Tim Tebow has a credible uh, argument as any to be the greatest college football player, at least quarterback, uh, that ever lived. And there's something to be said for that. So while I think we absolutely justified Tebow's place in the collection, that's definitely one that stands out to people when they flip and see him instead of Star or Mahomes. Um, let's go through a few others that have really stood out to people. I'll just say real quick,
0: those are like Mahomes and Star were my first two guesses at 15. Um, and it was pretty much the exact reasons you said. Like, look, if, you know, just given the vagaries of book deadlines and publishing, it's going to be outdated by the time it gets published and right. that's, I mean, you're that's talking a
1: challenge a fifth of his career is not going to be represented and that kind of stinks right so like part of what makes this book a history book is that like the longer your legend has endured the better shot you had right. to be in the book right, right. like that's your,
0: your story is done
1: right like having having aged gracefully right like a wine like, like like that actually kind of kind of helps you here so that was 15 let me ask you about 18 when you turned from john Havlicek, who's 17 to 18 and you saw jack nicholas and not peyton manning what did you think
0: I was a little bit surprised until I kind of reasoned through like 18 is clearly the number for Nicholas and Manning had another option, I guess, basically it was, was what I came to. Like for Nicholas, it was like 18 is it. There's nothing. I mean, you could do like numbers of a certain major, but we're past single digits, whatever. So, uh, I was surprised initially and then reasoning it out, it kind of fit in.
1: But if you had to, cho- like, if we wound up not finding another number for Peyton Manning, would, would it have then been indefensible to put him over Jack Nicholas, who I think is inarguably the greatest golfer of all time?
0: I don't think it would be indefensible for that exact reason. Like, it's a, it's the number by which a golfer is defined, for better and worse. And, yeah, he's the best or second best Golf forever, depending on, you know, whatever you want to do with Tiger Woods or you know, some people someone's gonna yell about Ben Hogan or Sam Sneed or somebody, but but realistically it's him or Tiger. So uh wouldn't be totally upset just because of the magnitude of 18 and Nicholas.
1: Yes, and now the last one I want to ask you about is fifty-six. So this was a very challenging one for me. When I say Joe DiMaggio, most people first say fifty-six, not five. And this is a big challenge for Greenie, who's who who's who grew up with a father who adored Joe DiMaggio. And also, um, understands the greatness of Lawrence Taylor, who wore 56, who might well be the greatest defensive player of all time. I mentioned, I think you could probably justify putting Lawrence Taylor 86, a place where we put the 1986 Mets. That was Lawrence Taylor's MVP season, the year the Giants won the championships. So you could have definitely finessed away there. And then you can find a place for five to, to go to go in a different direction, and you're obviously biased in that direction too. What George would you Brett, have done with, faced with that decision? This Look, if Greeny had this idea 10 years before, you would have written this book and not me. What, what would you have said – if you guys were trying to reconcile 5, 56, and
0: 86. Right. I mean, there's the Homer angle for me where George Brett should be number five because he carried a franchise for, you know, over a decade and won a World Series. And that, that would be, you know, my case for that. And obviously, he's an all time, he's one of the whatever, 25 ish greatest players ever, anyway, one of the two, three best third basemen. Um, for me, I think I would say more people probably know DiMaggio's hit streak number than Jersey number. Which I think would be the case for that, um, but 56 is also probably the only number most people know for Lawrence Taylor. Like you said, you could finesse it to get there. So as I was again, I read through this. I was guessing the numbers along with my dad. That was it was pretty much my exact case when five was DiMaggio. I was like, well, why wasn't it 56? Thinking that it has to be Lawrence Taylor. It, it's uh, so it makes sense. It it may not be kind of my first thought, and you know, in the a perfect world where you have you know multiple people or something, it might not. be. Be the ideal thing, but I think it's a pretty reasonable way to figure it out.
1: Yeah, I, I think you have that right. I, I happen to think fifty six is is the most enduring number in all of sports, right? And so that's, that's why I, that's why I think I would have gone there. And let me ask you about eight. So we landed at eight with Kobe Bryant, not Yogi Berra, not Alexander Ovechkin, not Carl Yastrzemski, not Cal ripken Jr. Kobe couldn't be twenty four because Willie Mays wore twenty four, and Willie Mays is the best baseball player of the last maybe well, ever, the best baseball player since Babe Ruth, certainly at minimum. And so. Then the only option for Kobe would be 81, which is where we have to Now, obviously we have a hundred as well. Chamberlain, he scored a hundred points. Kobe scored 81 points. How would you have done the eight, 24, 81 thing?
0: There's so many good options for eight that I probably would have been inclined to put Kobe at 81. Um, knowing you were involved, I expected Ripken to be eight because I know how much he means to you personally. So I I thought that was going to, that was my first guess when I guessed eight, uh, so, yeah, that's probably, that would have been my inclination at least, you know, without obviously having thought through it nearly as much as you and Greeny have is Ripken or, or or somebody or Aikman or Young or whatever you want to do at eight and, and bump Kobe to 81. But, you know, again, these are the tough decisions.
1: Very tough. And, and the last one and one that we've gotten a, a good amount of pushback for is 87. We, cho- we chose Gronk. We chose Rob Gronkowski over Sidney Crosby. Is that defensible or indefensible?
0: I mean, Crosby is, what, one of the five-ish best hockey players we've ever seen? And I'm not, not a hockey expert. Whatever. He's in the top 10.
1: No, he, he's probably in the top
0: 10. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly. Um, Gronk is arguably the best tight end we've ever seen. I would probably tend to lean Crosby in that just because, you know, he's... Oh, if Gronk's not one of the top 10 NFL players ever. No, he's
1: you know, not. He's
0: pro- he might be in the top, I don't know, 30, 50, something like that, whatever. He's a Hall of Famer, but he's not necessarily uh you know super inner circle whereas crosby is you could probably argue is on mount rushmore or at least on a whatever second mount rushmore or something yeah i mean he and
1: ovechkin are, are probably the, the defining players of their eras at minimum whereas gronk you could not say that about i think the case for gronk is pretty strong though like gronk is not gronk is the greatest tight end of all time uh that's our that's our position gronk is as big a reason as any individual person that that brady sort of had the second championship winning renaissance in his career um he's probably the greatest catcher. Like he's probably the greatest touchdown catcher, uh, like better at that than anybody has ever been. And it's the most important thing you could be as a pass catcher, obviously like the stats in his case are incredibly important. And the thing that uh, penguins and hockey fans don't want to hear that, that that just needs to be said is one thing I thought was really important is that we kind of capture American sporting life and the snapshot in which these players played and Gronk's cultural and historical significance, it's not obvious to me, is not greater than Sidney Crosby's. And that's why we have boxers in our book, but we don't have any modern ones. Like the boxers that we have are, are boxers when boxing mattered. Um, so yes, I would say the modern era or the current time of hockey is not well represented, but that's in part by design, right? Like that's why we have, we have you know, uh, Joe Lewis at 25, whereas we don't have Floyd Mayweather or Oscar De La Hoya or Bernard Hopkins because like – Boxing took a spot in in our in our minds at that time that just doesn't anymore. And I would say like, I would say Gronk is to an order of magnitude more significant and famous than Sidney Crosby is. And that might not be a satisfactory answer, but like more qualitatively, I think it at least is a defense on his behalf.
0: And there's something. I mean, look, this is a book primarily written for a U.S. audience by Americans. I mean, if whatever you were for TSN and were writing this book in Canada, it would look drastically different. If you were English and writing this book. In London, it would obviously have a lot more soccer players or whatever you mm-hmm. want. So.
1: so I'm putting you on the spot before you start. I mean, I've literally just asked you like the last six questions on your podcast, which I think is like <laughs> the first rule of, of being a podcast guest that I've broken now six times. So I'm going to do it for a seventh time. All right, one I'm more. I'm putting you on the spot and asking you what your favorite chapter was. And you can you can define that as um, I learned the most. I was reminded of the most things. This is just my favorite player that you guys talked about, whatever. Like if you got to just recommend one chapter to somebody, which would it be?
0: I mean, I, would, I think I was just most happy to see Look, as a soccer fan, I was happy to see Pelé in there, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a. I think it's probably a relatively straightforward choice. But, you know, just happy to see him. Like, yep, that should be it. You know, even in a book that, again, is largely American sports for an American audience. Like, that's just the fact that he's there. That kind of captures the transcendence of him to me.
1: And I think also kind of shows, it demonstrates, like, we didn't miss anything. Right. Cause like that would have been a really easy one to give to the, the best North American 10 and not have even thought about anyone else. And thanks to you, there are no errors in the play chapter. So
0: that's thank right. You very much. That's right. We're there. All right. <laughs> let's get into kind of your academic, your career path, you know, what you do kind of in your day job, really. So let's, let's start with that. What was your academic, your career path before you got to ESPN?
1: Sure. Um, I graduated, uh, from, uh, Cedarville university, which is a Christian liberal arts school in Ohio in 2012. I got a degree the yellow jackets. Yes. The Cedarville yellow jackets. I'm the all time walks a leader for the university, um, <laughs> which someday, uh, I assume they'll raise a banner that they have right. just, just <laughs> waiting. It's like, you know, it's like the chiefs, like AFC fi- 2014, AFC finalist, uh, uh, banner like that will be my, that will be my banner someday at yellow jacket field. So that, that will be the hope. Um, I got a degree in communication from Cedarville because literally I flunked out of business school and couldn't pass business calc, which is so ironic considering like everyone knows me at like as this ESPN, like numbers cruncher. And like, I'm truly not that I'm just like a sports fan that knows how to apply math a little bit. And so it wound up being the best thing ever because I would have been like a really average accountant or, or, um, fill in the blank business person. And, um, instead I was a really average sports researcher. (laughs) So I got a, I, I got a degree from, um, from Cedarville and then I did two years at LaSalle in an SID office. LaSalle's in North Philadelphia. I got a master's degree in education there um, merely because they paid for it and I'll probably never use it but I still have it. So that's a fun fact about me that uh, you didn't ask for but you got anyway. I randomly ran into Chris Mayer, a former uh, the manager in Stats and Info. And he was like bopping around Philadelphia to like recruit people and somehow uh, stumbled across me. I found out that he was coming to LaSalle. I turned this into like an impromptu interview and I guess impressed Chris Mayer enough that like he gave me his business card and I just emailed him until he finally sent me a link to like the Disney career site where I applied for like an entry-level research job. Um, I was gonna, I expected to spend like a lifetime of of uh, work in, in, in sports information. Like I really liked it. I wanted to be on campus. I had a degree in education, that I mentioned, that I thought I was going to use. and uh, But when ESPN offers you a job to – do something that you didn't know was a job. You take yep. it. Um, I imagine yep. your experience was fairly very similar. Small. Yep. Um, yeah. And so that's how it all started. I, I, I got to ESPN almost nine years ago now. Uh, you were obviously one of the very first people that I ever met, and um, you know we've both come a long way in nine years, kind of differently. But that's kind of how it all started. There was it was never part of the plan. I didn't know jobs like this even existed, but um, a little bit of divine intervention and a little bit of, of nagging Chris Mayer got got me uh, in the door, and I've uh, I never left since.
0: Right, right place, right time, a little persistence. Uh, exactly. Okay, so obviously I know the answer to this, but share the audience. What does an ESPN researcher do on average?
1: On average, an ESPN researcher um, supplies stats and information across a variety of places. So whether that be you're uh, writing or researching research packets that get sent around to the company around notable sporting events. Or maybe you are uh, working on a show at ESPN that where you build full screen graphics with stats on it so if you see you know most passing yards in the last 10 seasons and a list of names it's the researcher who built that um you supply the talent the, the anchor the host of the show with stats and information whether it be to make their highlight or shot sheet better whether it be to demonstrate a point when they're interviewing someone about a subject matter like i kind of think of it as like the brains of the operation is probably like the simplest way to describe it like this this, this one guy that used to do all these tours around espn and came by the research room um, the only thing he knew that we did was uh look up how to pronounce people's last names, <laughs> which we do. But in addition to doing that, we do literally everything else to supply people with information that makes ESPN sing, uh, up to and including all the things that you see on the bottom line. Like that's another thing that comes out of stats and info, or at least it used to. And so like that's kind of how I describe it. the brains of the operation. The last thing I, I say to people when they ask me what I do, I ever I ask them, have, have you ever watched Sump the Schwab? <laughs> they usually say yes. And I say, Yeah, I, I do what that guy used to do, in effect. And so think about it as like a lot of you's and me's like a lot of uh, like the person that you grew up with and that person knew more about sports than anyone that you know, it's like, it's like 50 of those people. uh, And uh, that's what's crazy. You get there and like everyone else knows as much about sports as you. And that's kind of a weird feeling on day one after having never had that feeling before one day in my life.
0: And now as a, producer on GetUp. What's it? What's a typical day like for you when you're doing GetUp? Take us through it, sure. please.
1: So uh, I'm, my, my role now is content producer, but I haven't totally eschewed all the researching stuff. I just don't do all like the sort of more like tedious day-to-day responsibilities, like, like full screen graphics building and, and video element writing and things of that nature. I do more of like the, let's supply talent with really fun and cool stats to illuminate their point. So I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, literally three o'clock in the morning, and I get myself ready for a four o'clock pre-show call with the producers. We kind of go through whatever the overnight team has laid in place in our, what we call rundown and sort of exchange ideas. And that usually takes 15 or 20 minutes. Between then and six o'clock, you are building the rundown and that includes making sure that you have all the necessary video, making sure that you have written all the necessary scripts, making sure that you have all the necessary questions, yada, yada, yada. At six o'clock, all the talent assembles on a call and we kind of put together the show and almost in some sense sort of mimic the show. So like on a Monday during football season, Greeny will say to Rex Ryan at 6.15 in the morning, okay, what do you want to say about Daniel Jones after he had his third straight game where he led the Giants on a comeback win? We'll generally get the sense of what Rex is going to say, and we'll do that 20 times across all the various topics that we're talking about with all the people that are on the show, right? That's kind of the idea of the 6 o'clock meeting. We put, uh, press play at 8 o'clock when the show goes live, and at that point, most of the work is done. Now, for me, I I do a daily trivia question, as you know. which uh, was just something I've kind of become known for on on uh, Get Up. They call me Sneaky Hembo. I ask a trivia question to one of our analysts, and they get it right or they get it wrong, and then I either am outraged that they got it right or some kind of devious and happy that I get it wrong. And um, I can assure you that I have become uh, and, and very talented in my performative state there, um, or at least I try. So it's important that. But here's the thing: like it's important that when you're watching the show at home, like you get the sense that this stuff matters as much to me as it does to you, and it does because. Like, this is my freaking job. Like, I'm you know, when Rex Ryan is like calling for a camera to like give me like a discount double check, right? Like who, who told a 15 year old version of me that that would be happening after he correctly guessed Mike Zimmer uh, for a trivia question that I conceived, like that person wouldn't have understood what that person was telling me, right? And so that's uh, kind of the thing I've become known for. The other thing that I do on Get Up is I do this thing we call trolling, which is I'll pop some stats onto the screen that usually coincide with something that a talent says or answer sort of answers an on-air question. It's like literally a chat machine that we have which makes me in some sense the most powerful, but also the most dangerous person at ESPN because no one sees it before it goes on the air, which is is kind of a bug in the system, to be honest with you. I'm not sure how (laughs) someone approved that and it hasn't gotten taken away from me (laughs) at that point. So that's an average day. We do that until 10 o'clock. What makes this job so kind of... um, fast paces, you do it five times. You don't have the chance to really, in my case now, you're not like doing like long-term projects. You're not doing much long-term planning. Like you're worried about what you're doing on Tuesday then. Right. And so I don't really get a chance to exhale very often. And then the last couple of years from 10 to 12, I've been on the radio show with Greeny. He's got a radio show again, hashtag Greeny. I'm a member of the hashtag crew. And I not only opine on the, uh, you know, the topics of the day, but I've also kind of taken responsibility with a lot of the baseball content that we do and try to supply a lot of the stats and gambling related stuff that we used to tell whatever stories that we talked about, you know, 20 minutes ago. And so that's kind of a day in the life. And uh, yeah, I mean, right now, I'm, I'm just hopping on my paternity leave. Uh, and so I'll have a chance to sort of catch my breath and see how the other half lives, because I have literally not stayed up and been able to consistently watch sports late at night for nine years, which is quite something to say. It's
0: wild. So I often compare what a researcher does to what an analyst does for a team, generally speaking, you know, a researcher versus uh, talent is kind of similar to an analyst versus a coach. Yeah. So as a researcher, you're often asked to get, you know, give me the best stat for this game, this person, whatever it is, which is kind of similar to what an analyst has to do with, you know, give me the best number on how to attack this pitcher, how to prepare for this opponent, whatever. So how do you approach the, give me the best stat for something, which is both freeing, I think in some ways, because you can go whichever way you want, but that also makes it challenging. How do you approach that question?
1: I approach the question of, from, from a starting point of who's asking me. And so I'll give you a, a, like the best example I'll use is like the, the Monday in the football season, get up crew, Dan Orlovsky, Ryan Clark and Rex Ryan. Those are the three analysts on the show that day. If let's say we're talking about um, Patrick Mahomes with some kind of like unbelievable comeback, 20 point win, 20 point comeback in the fourth quarter over Josh Allen and how incredible that was. So if each of them asked me for the best stat on fill in the blank, right for Rex Ryan, it's going to be something with historical significance. It's going to be, you know, Patrick Mahomes just did something that no one has done since Bart Starr in the, in the NFL championship game. I'm making stuff right, up. Right, right. Like, that's the kind of thing that he will like. And having known his commentary for all the years, I'll dig up the best like historical stat for Dan Orlovsky. Dan's going to want, like, a very very quarterbacky thing. And so like what he, what he what I'm going to say to Dan Orlovsky is, by the way, over the last four series of this game, Mahomes went 16 of 17 with a QBR of 99.6. Dan, that scaled 0 to 100. In other words, over the last four series of a football game, which his team needed every single throw, he was literally almost perfect. And Dan's going to use that. And in Ryan Clark's case, what I'm going to give to Ryan Clark, who's a very, looks very colorful, animated, like, um, analyst who I – Who's very passionate and emotional in his commentary, I'm gonna give him something that's memorable. So I'm gonna say, like Patrick Mahomes has now done this twice this season. The rest of the NFL is 0 in 212 in such instances, right? And he's gonna deliver that like a charm. Those, those three different ways to tell the same story based upon who's saying it, right? So that's that's how I sort of find how the how it is the best stat. Like there are some like outcome-based stats, and there are some processed stats process-based stats. And there's obviously the historical angle too, which I think is especially cool. And you got to remember like the viewer at home needs to be able to understand it. So it's like, just because you and I might understand it, that might not be literate, right? Because the person watched, you're only as as powerful as the brain of your consumer. And in that particular case, all three of those stats, I think the average consumer would be able to understand, but it'd be exceedingly easy to provide a context-free wow note on Patrick Mahomes that would go over the heads of most people.
0: Yep. So that kind of leads me to, uh, decisions you have to make about, you know, I'll just call them advanced stats. Generally, you know, stats that are more complicated. They might not be traditional box score stats. Uh, you know, there's often good options there, good options for traditional stats. Um, how do you think about that? When, when can I use an advanced stat? When can I not use, when do I need to dial back, dial up something like that, whether it's TV, radio, whatever, how do you think about balancing, advanced and traditional numbers?
1: Yes, it's a great question. It's it, it's exceedingly important because though you and I live in this stuff and we're fluent in all the metrics, all the advanced stuff, all the analytics, um, like the general public is years and years behind that. And there's a lot of people that are very averse to those things. And so I'll, I'll give you a perfect example that I tried to provide Greeny in terms of like contextualizing the greatness of Shohei Otani, right? So like in his case, like just sort of regurgitating his counting stats doesn't really do him justice because like, yes, it's amazing. But like, if he's fourth in ERA and seventh in OPS, like you're not doing a great job at like, at telling that story. Like we're watching a once in a generational, once in a century talent. And so here's the stat, right? So like over the last three years, Greeny, Shohei Otani's pitching line, his ERA plus, is equivalent to the career of Pedro Martinez. And over that same period of time, his batting line, his career, his OPS plus is equivalent to the career of Frank Robinson. And so what I'm telling you, Greeny, is that over the last three years, Shohei Otani is literally both Pedro Martinez and Frank Robinson in the same person, and yet this team still still can't win, and get to the playoffs. How Im- remarkable is that? That's how you use advanced stats. You have to be able to take it w- one layer beyond what the stat is, because if you don't understand it, it doesn't mean anything. Like no matter, like if I said his OPS plus is 151 and his ERA plus is 144, literally no one would know if that's good. <laughs> right. But if you tell if you tell me that's Pedro Martinez and Frank Robinson. Everyone knows that it's good.
0: Right. So make sometimes make it a little less about the number and you add rank, historical context, what it whatever means. it is, something like that. Uh, any other similar tips for someone trying to communicate complex information, uh, advanced statistics to people who are less familiar with them?
1: The most important thing is to know your audience. So like I could do, I could do five different shows, um, five different platforms, five different audiences, same exact subject matter. And I would deliver the same information in five different ways. I would say knowing your audience is the most important thing. That is not to say that you dumb down information based upon like the lowest common denominator in your audience. I think we often uh, honestly underestimate the intelligence of people. It's not about how smart you are, uh, how how smart the consumer is or the listener or the viewer. It's about how clear and articulate you are in delivering the information. So that's why that Otani stat I think was a perfect example of being able to sort of storytell powerfully because I use two advanced stats to tell a very simple message. In some cases, you might be able to get away with providing the context-free stuff with his batting line and pitching line, but it totally depends on who your audience is. And so, without insulting your audience, you can do an inc- you can do an you can tell incredible stories, but based upon their fluency. Like you wouldn't ask, you know, a sixth grader to, to read War and Peace, at least not most of them. Just like you wouldn't ask, you know, a senior in high school to read Huck Finn. Like it's 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 the same way when it comes to your consumer. So know your audience. Um, and if you can make the if you can make the numbers like powerful if you if you can make them tell stories beyond what just they are what you'll find is that people will keep coming back for more like you'll wind up being like the source of information for people because you make the numbers mean something like numbers are so complicated to some people that they don't even want to bother touching them like how often like just the, the word analytics is such an ugly word right that like people w- would rather like operate from a position of, of, of ignorance, then try to understand it merely because it comes with this connotation. But for the most part, people are actually curious. You just have to make them want, like you have to make them understand why it matters and why it's easy to understand. Right. So in short, know who you're delivering the information to and tailor that message for them. Because if you're not doing that, like you're not seeing the potential in people. And I would say that's probably the best way to determine the best way to deliver a piece of information in whatever walk of life you're in.
0: You mentioned how, you know, this research life that we've fallen into is, well, we fell into it. You know, we didn't major in research necessarily. Um, So I guess what advice, you know, someone comes to you and says, Hey, I want to do something like what you're doing. I want to, you know, sports TV research or sports media research or whatever. What advice other than, you know, you got to, there's a little bit of stumbling into the right sort of uh, kind of job, but what advice do you have for someone looking to get into sports TV media research?
1: Uh, Go to nursing school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do something productive with your life. (laughs)
1: <laughs> do, do something that matters for God's sake. So um, it's a great question. I'm, a, I'm sure you are asked this often. I'm asked yep. this often. If you want to be an engineer, if you want to be a nurse, if you want to be an accountant, like there's a there's just a direct pipeline track to do that. Like it's so obvious how to become that. If you want to become Paul Carr or Hembo, like you don't have, there, that doesn't, that pipeline doesn't exist. It's a, it's a pretty niche thing. And people from all different walks of life find themselves in there. Here's what I would say. It is exceedingly important that you have like a bedrock, a foundation of information and fluency and knowledge about sports. Um, you have that. I have that. And that comes from as early as I can remember, as early in age I can remember, collecting baseball cards and memorizing the stats on the back of them, scouring the bat- box scores in newspapers and sort of speaking that language, playing fantasy sports and just knowing all the players and who's good and who's not. Right, learning to write, learning how to, uh, to to, on social media, whether it be Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, of using like numbers, like things that you think are interesting in sports, and packaging them intelligently to tell whatever story it is you think might be compelling to the people that follow you. Like, that's the best way to do it is just by having like this accrued knowledge, like this demonstrated performance of your whole life, right? Like, that's that's what this is. It's almost like I kind of view my position now as something of a coronation of 20 years of useless knowledge. I remember this day vividly. I was getting a D in chemistry. I was 17 years old. And my dad was just, my dad was just hounding me on the way home from school one day. And it was like, 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 I, like I knew I was failing. Like, like I was so bad at chemistry. I was supposed to be a third generation pharmacist. Like, what was I <laughs> going to do with my life? Become a sports media researcher? Yeah, okay. yeah, dad, I did. Right. And that's because like, I was one of 50 people in the world that happened to have this useless knowledge that turned into something. Right. But that's like, that's what I would say is like, if you truly love and know this stuff the way that we do. That's the best way to get there, but you need the foundation. You truly do because, you know, without it, like you and I both have worked with people uh, at ESPN and other other places that like, you think know a lot about sports, but once you, you know, peel back the onion, one or two layers, like, oh, you don't know who Ralph Kiner is. You don't really know a lot about baseball, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, right. that's kind of how it works. Like you just got to know a lot. And then once you know a lot, you got to use that information powerfully because there's a lot of people that know a lot that can't do that. But if you can do both, you can have a really fun career in this thing.
0: Yep. All right. Let's uh, wrap things up with our plain favorite segment where we get to know a number of your favorites. So let's start with what is your personal favorite number and why not book related, just favorite number and why? <sighs>
1: wow. Um, that's unbelievable. That's an unbelievably good question. I, I think my favorite number uh, of all numbers is 2130. But my favorite number is 2130 because that's the number of consecutive games that Lou Gehrig played in his career. And it's obviously the number that Cal Ripken Jr. passed in 1995. I love baseball history and, like, uh, Lou Gehrig's life and career arc and story of of reaching that number and then obviously succumbing to ALS not long after is an extraordinary one. Pride of the Yankees was my favorite sports movie growing up, and having been born in Baltimore in the year 1990. To see Cal Ripken Jr. eclipse that number, like it was literal. The, the Associated Press the day after he broke the record literally declared it an unbreakable record in the headline. Like it was, cons- like they editorialized in the headline. It was something that no one thought anyone could ever do. So twenty one thirty is my favorite number because I love how in sports, like when the past connects to the present or connects to the future. Just like when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar handed LeBron that 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 basketball at at, at half court when he passed. And he passed that record this year. So powerful and meaningful, right? And for Joe DiMaggio to say on uh, a Camden Yard that day how Lou Gehrig is smiling down from heaven and 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 so grateful and thankful that someone came along to be able to do this for as long as you did, Cal, to break that record, it's just so incredibly powerful. Because I'm a sports fan, just like just like you are, just like anyone listening here is. And so we like hold near and dear to some of these numbers. And in, in that particular case, for me, that's the number because I happen to like look. The marathon is the most difficult run race to run. And endurance has become an underrated part of sports. And the way that Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken Jr. ran that race, to me, is is a singular accomplishment in sports history. To to play that many consecutive games in baseball, when so few people can ever do that for one year in a row, is so extraordinary. And for those two guys to have done it, and for that to be those two guys, because if it were Pete Rose, it would mean so much less. If it were Babe Ruth, it would have meant so much less. Like the fact that it were those two characters with that record – 21.30 21.30 is my favorite number in sports.
0: Nice. Favorite athlete for you. Maybe we've already answered this, but your favorite athlete as a kid.
1: My favorite athlete as a kid was Cal Ripken. My favorite athlete as a teenager was, was Chase Utley. Uh, I grew, my, my family moved to Philadelphia in 1998. I became a Phillies fan not long after. And Chase Utley was my favorite Philly. When Chase Utley is eligible for the Hall of Fame soon, I will be the reason <laughs> that he gets in the Hall of Fame. I assume that I will be his presenter. I assume that I will give his speech. I assume that I will be given editorial freedom in terms of what is on his plaque. So yeah, that's the yeah. best way to answer that question.
0: Okay, yeah, I was... Uh... Yeah. i going to make the Chase Utley Hall of Fame joke, but you by far. <laughs> do you uh, so one of the things you've kind of referenced this that we did a lot in the research room was trivia. Some, you know, some interesting, some not some, you know, but always fun. Do you have a favorite research room trivia moment or, you know, maybe the himbo has arrived research room trivia moment or something?
1: That's a very interesting question. So yes, I actually do, but it's not trivia. It's not a room, uh, research room related, but I'll, I'll, Anyway, I'll disembark and give you the story without without digressing. Um so I got to ESPN in twenty fourteen, like you mentioned, and I had I had known who Mark Simon was because I followed him on Twitter and like, I remember, like, really wanting to meet Buster Olney and Jason Stark and Tim Kirchin and all these, like, you know, old, crusty sports writers that I grew up, uh, growing up knowing, reading and uh, learning to love. And, like, these were the people that I wanted to meet. Like, usually you, people, you know, show up at ESPN, they want to meet, like, the sports enter anchors and, like, the former athletes and whatnot. I wanted to meet Kirchin Stark, and only, So that tells you exactly how, how crusty I am. But anyway, um, uh, Mark Simon arranged uh, – like a lunch between with me, him and Jason Stark. So Jason Stark was on campus one day for baseball tonight or something. And so the three of us went to the half-calf and had some lunch. Um, <laughs> and naturally we got into a ridiculous uh, game of trivia or some such nonsense to which um, the answer to a question was Mickey Cochran, because why wouldn't it be? Of course. And um, Mark Simon asked the question and I answered it before Jason Stark, who like I had grown up reading baseball books about and like, uh, he, you know, he's he, you know he did Mike and Mike Trivia like every week, right? Like yeah. this was this is Jason freaking Stark, and I just got Mickey Cochran over Jason Stark. Um, and like he looked at me and said something to the effect of, "Oh, you know, like, like you're gonna be all right, kid." And like it was like my <laughs> second week at ESPN. I'm like, yeah, like I just stumped Jason Stark. Like, what kind of life is this? And I would have never imagined. Like, that's not a moment that actually matters. But like the fact that you asked that, I haven't thought about it since then. And I just recall that I guess evidence that it does matter a little bit.
0: I had a similar moment with Mark Simon very early. <laughs> I don't know what the question was, but the answer was Mark Langston.
1: Okay. You know, okay. I've been there
0: a week or two and he's, and he and some others are like, ah, you're going to do it right here. If you get you know, yes. Mark Langston that, out of it's, nowhere.
1: It's like, you're, um, it's like, okay, you're one of us now. Like, right. like, you know, you, you can name a random old, like you can, you can, right. you can, you can say oil can void and like people will laugh. Right. Like yes. you're like, you speak my language. That's, you know, it's like the Tower of Babel situation.
0: Yeah. a Bunch of dorks we are. I tell you, <laughs> uh, uh, we'll take a left turn a bit. I know you're a big uh, movie musical fan. You have a favorite movie musical
1: Yes. So, uh, Sound of Music is the greatest movie ever created. And, and, and there is no close second. Um, of this, there is no question. We can talk about uh, other movies. Uh, we can talk about other musicals. Sound of Music is the greatest uh, movie ever conceived. <laughs> Julie Andrews' role in it as Fräulein Maria is, is the magnum opus of, of the medium. And um, when, as as these uh, as people from this movie are sort of unfortunately dry, uh, dying and dropping like flies, every time it gives me an excuse to go back and watch. So last year's uh, uh, Christopher Plummer, oh, hey. now, who, as it turns out, didn't even like recording the thing, which 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 may be <laughs> quite sad. Uh, a few years back, it was Charmaine Clark, who Liesel, uh, Liesel, mm-hmm. parenthetically, mm-hmm. the first woman I ever loved. The sixteen going on seventeen <laughs> scene is blazing into my head when I'm four years old and she's spinning with Rolf. Um, uh, she has terrible taste in men, but I was able to put it past me. <laughs> This movie is unbelievable. Like, if you ever watch this out of music with me, you have lost a bet because not only do I know all the songs, I know all the narrative. So, like, I'm like reciting lines, and I'm like, prov- I'm like, I'm like delivering Gretel's lines as she's like, you know, like uh, slowly meandering up the stairs. So that that's the kind of person I am. Like, not only can I crunch the numbers and give you Johnny Vandermeer and Eliud Kipchoge, but I can also give you uh, Brigitte Louisa and and Gretel. Of course.
0: Yeah. And this is why we're friends, I guess. Uh, finally, <laughs> you, you kind of already answered this one, but we like to close with the favorite "How did I get here?" moment where you know, you kind of like my career life has brought me to this wild, crazy place and you're able to kind of take a step back and appreciate everything.
1: Okay. I'll give you a few of these. If you don't mind, I'll go fast. Cause I know I, like, I've been talking much too much. There was a a moment, my first few months at ESPN, um, when I was researching one of my first sports centers and Hannah Storm was anchoring, Now, know, I, I mean, look, Hannah's a legend. Like I have grown up like, what, like, like Hannah, Hannah is a, a, an institution. I mean, like she's so incredibly well-known and famous and has done this for as long as anybody. And here she is me like asking me information for the show. So I'm like, I'm already like a little like, startled and, and starstruck to be to be candid. And of course, this is a day where we're doing like manual Ryder Cup updates because we're not checking. We're not and I like I, I don't even know how Ryder Cup is spelled candidly. So like the fact that she's yelling back, asking me information on the Ryder Cup, like my third week at ESPN when I'm still unpacking my desk. So I like I throw together some kind of uh assuredly wrong graphic, run the copy to her like 15 seconds to go. Two minutes later, she's reciting this on TV, and I like I lean back in my chair and I'm like, yeah, Hannah Storm just ran my incorrect Ryder Cup copy, so I guess I made it. So, so that was definitely one of the moments where like super famous person needed something for me super fast, and I delivered it probably wrong. Um, second time, second thing, I was working on Mike and Mike. It was the 2015 or 2014 season, college football national championship, the first one, the Ohio State Oregon one. And the day before – the day of the championship game and the day after the championship game, I filled in for Kristen Balboni, who was, as it turns out, like on a job interview to go become the Panther sideline reporter, which she became, <laughs> which I found out later. And I'm just, like, filling in for her. And, look, I mean, I've grown up on Mike and Mike, like I'm sure many people uh, – obviously many people did that went up working with them. And so I just wanted to do a good job and, like, uh, you know, represent myself well. So like, I set my alarm for, like, 1.30 in the morning. Like, I'm, like, crushing, like, steak and eggs at home at 2 o'clock in my apartment in Middletown so I can be full. I, like – out NST, I have like a, everything like in neat folders and whatnot, like just to try to impress these guys, and like you know, a couple hours into the show, like I'm 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 sending emails to he and Golic, um like in real time in anticipation of segments, like wondering if like they find any of the stuff interesting, and after like a couple of uh, Greenies like read a couple of them on the air and used them, and at one point he like shouts me out like we have a Paul back here who's doing research for us today, and I remember like saying to myself like you know like I could. I could kind of get used to that. Like that was <laughs> cool. Like, Cause you know, like if you're researching a random show, like you're not getting like on air shout outs, like it's right. actually kind of frowned upon. Um, or at least I thought it was. And so if, like for Greeny to shout me out, like, like my first or second day working on Mike and Mike, I was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool. And as it turns out, like I haven't left, left his side for the last eight years. So yeah. um, it must've been really freaking cool.
0: Yep. Yeah. Good. No, we love hearing the, the stories, of how people got there and what they can appreciate. And then, GMA. Like, uh, and then GMA, like that's I was on cool. GMA with him like yeah. three
1: weeks ago. And like, and like the, the, I forget the name of the, the name of the lady who was, who was doing the interview that day. Cause I was hoping it'd be Strahan Cause we didn't give him 92. And as a Philly guy, I was hoping to make a joke about that, uh, but yeah. that would have probably not gone over well. Uh, I was told in, in hindsight, yeah. regardless, like I'm sitting there and like, she's like alternating between greenie and me, like asking me questions about sports. <laughs> I'm like, I'm wearing makeup. How did, how, how bleep did I get here? Like what yeah. in the world happened? Like what went right? And what went, you know, what went wrong? But either way, it was a, those are a few things that really stand yeah,
0: out to me. No, well, something went right. You got a New York Times bestselling book for three weeks so far. So congratulations on thank that. You, thank you, thank And you. Paul Himbekitis, content producer for GetUp, affectionately known as Hembo. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value.
1: I'm affectionately known as Hembo to some, not so to others, but I appreciate the time and, and the platform. I
0: hope you enjoy the book, my friend. All right. Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks to Hembo for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Paul Himbo, H-E-M-B-O. And you can buy Got Your Number anywhere books are sold, including a link we have in our show notes. Like I said, it's loaded with great numbers and information. I highly recommend it for sports fans and historians. I'm joined now by producer Sergio de la Esprilla, who's very happy to see Tim Tebow in the book. An- another spoiler alert, Sergio. Uh, welcome to the show. And I know you're also happy always to discuss movie musicals among other things.
2: I think I think with the fact that Tebow is in this mentioned specifically in this book, we're talking briefly about movie musicals. This we could <laughs> just call this like the the Sergio special episode. Like That's this right. is a pretty good one. Um and it was it was great to um to have him on and and and, and talk about these things so behind the scenes wise I made a Tebow joke beforehand yeah um I was just given this book by uh, an aunt of mine for my birthday last week and I just recently started it. I have not gotten to Tebow yet to number 15 but I jokingly was like oh yeah of course 15 has to be Tebow um <laughs> and you guys were like uh-huh sure uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> without trying to spoil it and right. uh you thought I must have been joking, but I was 100 percent serious because as any Florida Gator alumnus would say, Tim Tebow's rightfully the most important number 15 in the history of sports. And no one. I don't want to have a debate about it, because why would I do that? <laughs> I don't care how many Super Bowls
0: Patrick Mahomes wins in the next nope. 10 years. No. And Too honestly,
2: white. as as a Dolphins fan as well, you know, I can't wait for Patrick Mahomes to become the true goat. So I don't have to talk about Tom Brady as a fan anymore. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, so just so, just know that's how much Tim Tebow means to me as a Florida alumnus. All right,
0: let's get this out of the way before we get into the uh, other things that Hembo talked about. Favorite movie
2: musical for you? Okay, so when Embo said uh, The Sound of Music and There Isn't a Close Second, (laughs) I agree with him that The Sound of Music is fantastic. Um, That is my dad's favorite movie. I watch it at least twice a year with him and I'm not kidding. Um, But I think for the sake of the content, Paul, um, I'm going to go with a more modern one. I, I went home um, yesterday and, and did some work knowing we we're going to record this part today. Uh, I really like La La Land. I really? know from, I think it was 2016 or so mm-hmm. that Oscars year where Moonlight, which Moonlight deserved best picture. We're going deep now and in, into the Sergio, um, yeah. <laughs> the Sergio universe right now. This is, this right is now. my
0: wheelhouse also keep going.
2: But th- that Oscars year, I remember going to the movies and seeing, I think I saw almost every best picture nominee And while Moonlight 100% was the best movie deserved to win, the musical theater major um, song and dance lover in me went when La La Land opens and they have that opening scene where they literally stop traffic and there's like a bridge in Los Angeles that they're dancing on is incredible. And then you do the homework and Emma Stone is fantastic in that in that movie, especially towards the end in that scene where she's doing the audition. And right. I think anyone who's ever been to an audition and kind of broken down with it understands how powerful that is. Gosling actually playing the piano, the dancing—it's a fantastic film and a great like homage to the old school Gene Kelly type movies and such. So that's why I'll go with La La Land for the sake of the content, Paul. What about you? What's funny?
0: I literally watched La La Land a week ago because um, I went through on Damien Chazelle run, and it's, yes, it's great. It's still really good, and I love the last the, that last scene especially in La La Land mm-hmm. without spoiling it but it's just it's a perfect ending even though it's a little bit unconventional um i'm going to speaking of gene kelly i'm going to go singing in the rain because i mean i think there's like a 10 15 minute stretch when it goes from good morning to the title song that's Mm -hmm. like movie perfection yeah Um, there's a citrus scene that's just like makes my jaw drop every time even yeah i'm not totally sure it fits in the movie perfectly but it's great um it's kind of a classic hollywood story so Singing in the rain is my favorite. I probably put sound of music number two. I'm not gonna fight fight about it. Hembo uh, and I may have fought about this in the past. But we, can, we can leave <laughs> A- that. Alleged, allegedly,
2: allegedly, yeah. that could have been one it's of the possible. conversations. It's <laughs> possible.
0: Um, okay, so some other things that Hembo touched on that I think are pretty important. Uh, just and you know, it, to be quite honest, I may have taught him some of these things when I trained him at ESPN. I'm not sure. I have slides on some of this stuff for different presentations I've done at conferences and colleges and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, one thing is know your audience. You know, he talked about having different answers for a Mahomes stat, kind of depending on which analyst is going to use it. And it's, it's the same thing for, if you're an analyst working with coaches or front office or presenting in you know, almost any industry, there's know your audience. If I'm presenting to a, you know, let's say a very technical group, then obviously I can get more in the weeds if, and maybe it's, there's numbers and spreadsheets. If I'm presenting to, you know, we'll just. It's not a stereotype here, coaches. I may want more graphics of heat maps or spray charts or something like that. And the number itself doesn't really matter because you don't always have to use numbers. A lot of times mm-hmm. it's the visual, it's the you know, his comp for comparing Otani to Frank Robinson and Pedro Martinez. You know, those names are more powerful than any number would be. So, which you know, on
2: paper is an absurd comparison, but then you right. watch Shohei and you go, actually, you know what? That makes sense yeah, with your good. eyes as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So no like know your audience it's just a, it's a seemingly simple thing, but you tailor your numbers, your stats, your presentation, your visuals, whatever it is, like to the people that you're speaking to, because those are the that those are the ones who have to understand it and likely take that info and you know translate it somewhere else, whether it's TV players, whatever it is. So knowing your audience, presenting things the right way to the right people is super important.
2: And and in a similar vein, taking that right, it's very clear that he took that and then transferred it over to the writing of this book with Greenberg, right? like for example when he mentioned the Kobe Bryant what number should you pick right and there's three very clear op- options right obviously his two jersey numbers 8 and 24 but then also 81 right like and i know at least from my my vantage point i grew up when i was a kid i was 10 years old when when Kobe dropped 81 points and that was like a a landmark moment in like my sports youth and so for me even though he had 8 and 24 as Jersey numbers, it's the creativity of knowing your audience of, okay, I can tell this story three different ways, right? I can tell the story of Kobe with the number eight, and that's one way of telling the story, the number 24, and that's a different way of telling the story. But I can also use that one singular iconic performance that we all remember um, with number 81, right? And it's how many of those dilemma, I don't even say dilemmas, but how many of those situations did he come across with? having multiple options for players and and for a specific number, right? Does it have to be a player? Talking about DiMaggio, right? He's right. When we talk about DiMaggio, I don't think of the number five. No, right. I think of the hit streak. Yeah. Like that's what you do. That's what you think of. So it it's it's a fun way of knowing your audience, of understanding that there are multiple ways to tell a story. And as someone with a storytelling background from musical theater and um it was nice to see again, the confirmation of what I believe the thesis of expected value to be, which is there's not one way to do things, right? There's not one way to get to that point in your career. There's not one way to tell a specific story. And I just think that it's, it's very properly encompassed in that, in this book and in the way that he was talking about it in that interview. It really, I was listening there listening, you know, my producer chair, as I always do with, with uh, the interviews you do. And I was like, yeah, man, like that, that's, that's kind of the gist of it to me, you know? There's no one way to live life. There's no one way to tell a specific story. And when you know that your audience can receive the same uh, gravitas of a story in two or three different directions, which one do you go with? And that's part of the excitement as well as as a reader and and as someone consuming it, because you know that there are many different options on how to go. And I think that he just does a wonderful job and did a wonderful job explaining that in, in the interview
0: yeah and not to like turn this into life lessons with Paul and Sergio, but it's I mean getting the <laughs> that's, context... a, that's a that's
2: a great side side podcast by the <laughs> this, way is our, a... our next podcast
0: right yeah uh, I mean getting context is helpful, so you know he's explaining why different uh guys are in different numbers because there's so much more than just one data point than one decision point that, I mean you have to factor all these things in, and this is what you know, again life lesson type of thing. There's a lot going on that we never we don't know about and we just see one thing happen and everyone jumps to conclusions because this is what we do in this modern age and there's a lot of more often than not there's more going on than we think beneath the surface and that goes into these things so there's everyone be nice to everybody is what yes, I'm yes yes <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> especially right.
2: be, be nice to south florida sports fans too in this coming week just oh, want to yeah. point that
0: one whether out whether they're under their desk or jumping on top of it be nice to them. <laughs> exactly exactly All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks one more time to Paul Hempikidis for joining us on the show. You can find a lot more interviews with ESPN analytics types in our archives, including Jeff Bennett, who oversees the entire ESPN stats and information group. He was one of our first guests. We've had analytics specialist Brian Burke and analytics developer Lauren Poe on the show as well. Please leave us a rating and review. We always appreciate those things on any platform that helps us grow the show. You can follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports or email the show expectedvalue at TrueMedia Networks.com. That's T R U Media Networks.com. On behalf of Sergio De La Esprilla and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.